All right, I'd like to note at the onset here that you can hear six different interviews we had with Vladimir Zarevika by going to our website, radioparallax.com, typing in the name Vladimir Zarevika, which is, by the way, spelled V-L-A-D-I-M-I-R-Z-E-R-A-V-I-C-A. And what we're planning to do in the next few days is create um, a show, which will be entirely devoted to our interviews with Vlado. He was a great guy, and I think what a great guy he is. It will be nicely conveyed by the interview, which we will now air. This has never been heard on Radio Parallax, except for a version of this program, which was formerly aired on a Brandex station here in Sacramento. Joining us now on the program is our very own aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zarevika. Welcome back, Vlado. Thank you very much for inviting me back. Vlado, we wanted to talk to you about flying cargo around the world because uh, in one of the incarnations of Radio Parallax, we've been discussing arms traders and arms dealers and things that get flown from point A to point B, and since you do that for a living, we thought you'd be the perfect guy to come in and talk a bit about it. Well, I don't fly arms for a living. I do fly <laughs> cargo for a living all no, over North America. No, I wasn't implying North you were arms and drugs. <laughs> but cargo, yes. Okay. Sometimes we don't know what's in the back, nor do we care. Maybe you flew arms and didn't know it. Maybe. But you have flown some oddball things that you did know about, and I thought we would start with some of those. One of the most uh, oddball things that uh, I've uh, flown is uh, $12 million in cash from uh, Miami down to uh, Panama. Uh, Panama uses U.S. currency, and it was a uh, Treasury Department uh, load of cash that we were hauling down to fill their ATMs. So you got a lot of $20 bills, I guess. Well, when we got to the airport in Miami, we were uh, notified that there was going to be a large cash shipment on down. And uh, uh, as we were waiting for the uh, the cargo to get loaded up, a Brinks truck pulled up with uh, two guards and they pulled out the back a pallet. And the, the pallets that we use is a five by seven metal pallet. And this uh, was stacked about three feet high on this pallet all the way around uh, shrink wrapped cash. <laughs> And the, the first thing that I thought that was uh, uh, kind of interesting about that, it was just uh, two old guards that were standing there with $12 million <laughs> and the chain link Pops. fence. Exactly. <laughs> the chain link fence that was separating us from, um, you know, outside Miami was only about 30 feet away. <laughs> I, I was a little bit hesitant about walking around the plane. And then um, I asked the captain what he thought. And he was go ask him. And, and I thought to go take a picture of the or 12 million dollars uh-huh turns out the guard took the camera from me and said go sit on it i'll take a picture of you <laughs> sitting on the 12 million dollars so somewhere in some digital file i've got a picture of me sitting you know on 12 million dollars worth of uh, worth of uh, cold hard good old american currency now I, I just have to ask at this point you guys had a flight plan to fly from miami to panama city correct okay did it cross your mind as you took off 
well, maybe we could just divert this cargo somewhere else. Well, it's about a two, two and a half hour flight down there, and it was after dark at night, and there wasn't very much to look at, because uh, although the stars were pretty, and sometimes we run out of things to talk about, but not on that trip. <laughs> Unfortunately, the way that they had st- intentionally loaded, or mm. maybe fortunately, the way mm. that they had intentionally loaded the aircraft, the uh, cache was packed all the way into the back, and there were 11 other pallets completely full of the normal cargo that we hauled down to Panama between us in the cockpit and the cache, and there was actually no way for us to get to it from within the airplane. Well, but, but I'm thinking, couldn't you fellow strip somewhere in Nicaragua to put down? That crossed our mind too <laughs> believe me and we flew the uh, we fly the exact uh, type of aircraft that db cooper for allegedly hijacked the boeing 727 so we came up with all kinds of db cooper type of things of trying to to get to the back and uh, dump it out of the air stair but alas your honesty prevailed yes yes of course it was just a way for us to amuse ourselves um before we got to panama and one of the con- things we came up with was uh to steal the airplane and fly it to Colombia, but then we thought, how long would three gringos with a uh, stolen <laughs> aircraft yeah, and $12 million dollars, right. yeah, in cash last there? Um, what really got interesting is when we landed in Panama. Yeah, what, uh, kind, of, what kind of reception committee did you have? I, I had never seen so many scary, large-looking men with guns pointed towards me. As soon as we landed and pulled up to the cargo terminal, this was about 3 o'clock in the morning, in Panama, we were immediately surrounded by four Jeeps, two armored cars, and about 20 very scary-looking men with really big rifles. They completely surrounded the aircraft, Mm -hmm. would not let anybody near it except for the small pre-approved crew that loaded and unloaded the aircraft. And uh, as soon as the cash came off the aircraft, it, it was put in one of the two cars, and they jumped onto the Jeeps and sped away. Needless to say, I did not exit the aircraft and ask, for my picture to be taken with any of them. I stayed in the cockpit. I sort of get the idea, you know, talking about Victor Boot and how they were basically using the same serial numbers for various aircraft. They would register them in Liberia, which apparently has just as lax a registration for aircraft as it does for, like, these limping freighters that are always, like, going aground. Yes. Talk about that a little bit. I've, you know, got a private pilot's license here. It seems all very regimented, all very, you know, by the book. But apparently in in the international uh, flights that go on, uh, there's some laxity. There is some laxity unless you're you're talking about a flight to or from the United States. But uh, uh, around the Caribbean uh, uh, and uh, uh, Central America and parts of South America where I have flown, sometimes it's uh, you just show up and you're there. Often just me wearing my pilot's uniform completely eliminated the need for for passports or (laughs) security. The first time I was in a small little Caribbean island and I tried to get back out to the airplane to go through the actual metal detector, I started taking off my my flashlight from my belt and some of the uh, items that I've had on me that were metal. The security guard looked at me and said, "Are are you going to sabotage your own airplane? And I looked at him and said, no said, well, why are you taking that off then? <laughs> yeah, that's a really valid point. And <laughs> for the next six months, I just brazenly walked through the metal detector with it beeping and mowing, and I would not even you know, break stride, just walk right out to my airplane. They get a little overboard sometimes here, but I guess the other extreme is not so reassuring either. No, no, it isn't. 
Well, I, I got to ask you a, a little bit about these, the, what do they call these, these Russian aircraft? The Antonov? The Antonovs. I, I, I was reading about what Victor Boot flying these things around uh, the world, and I so, took a look at them on the web, the size of these aircraft. These things are like humongous. They're bigger than 747s. They, they are huge. Some of my uh, coworkers who uh, worked in the Air Force, they, uh, they call them the uh, C-5 skis. <laughs> It seems that uh, Russians reverse engineered a lot of aircraft, and you, you can look at them, and it's a, it's it's a, even a 747 ski or a, a C-17 ski. But the Antonov is a very very huge aircraft, and I've seen it uh, several places around North America uh, on charters. Also, people are familiar with I think from Travis and all the air bases we have here in this, this general area how big some of these things are. But the idea of getting a craft like that to some airstrip in the middle of nowhere in Central America or Africa, I mean. They must have some really large strips, or else these planes can really take a lot of abuse. It's it's a little of both. Some of the strips in in uh, Africa and whatnot were built large concrete strip. Um, also, the uh, Antonov and the entire Russian design of aircraft was to to operate in harsh conditions, and it's a very well built aircraft that has a lot of uh, lifting capacity and does not need as large of a strip as, as you would normally think. There was a tale in the book Merchant of Death by, by Stephen Braun. We interviewed uh, Mr. Braun some while back. He, they were describing how he, Boot got the contract to get Joseph Mobutu or Mobutu Sesi Seko out of Zaire. Mm-hmm. And apparently, according to the story, they got a lot of his people on board, I guess the people they wanted to get on board, and they left a few guards behind to serve as a deterrent to the, to the people that were closing in on them. And when they realized they were going to be left behind, they opened fire on the <laughs> aircraft, which then went rocketing down this pockmarked runway, and the guys on board were very admiring of the Russian technology, saying, gee, you know, we'd have never gotten off the ground in a 747. And you have to remember also, Doug, that in, in, in the type of operation that this is in, the aircraft's coming in full and heavy. And uh, when it leaves, it's uh, leaving uh, with only half of its fuel and uh, ideally empty. So it does not need as, as, as uh, long of a runway as, a, let's say, a fully loaded 747 would need. I mean, how long runway are we talking about? Like Mather, Mather Field is like, in Sacramento, it's a military field. It's like about, about a mile and a half long, I guess. Uh, longer. It's, about, it's over 12,000 feet. Okay, so two miles long. I've seen the Antonov down in Caracas, Venezuela, which, if memory serves me, is only about a 10,000-foot strip. Mm-hmm. But it is at sea level. I've also seen that plane in Denver. Also, 5,000 feet above sea level, and, and those all of those runways are 12,000 feet. And I've also seen it up in Calgary. That's a lot of runway, though. People don't realize that that's a, quite a bit of it's asphalt. Or over two miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, the Sacramento uh, uh, airport runways, I think, are uh, flowing around uh, eight or nine thousand feet. But a 747 can can um, can handle that too. Okay. So, but it is a very uh, tough built aircraft, and it was built to do exactly that. Drop now, lots of equipment into uh, unimproved strips, you, not at Heathrow. Yeah, you, you've flown though. You've flown up in, in Alaska. You've flown a lot of places in Central America, and I'm sure you know a lot of people in the industry who hire out. Do you know anybody that's gotten involved in some of this stuff over in uh, Africa and the like? There's uh, there's several people that uh, that I work with or have worked with uh, over the years that um, after a few beers they'll start telling stories of. Uh, and we kind of called it Brand X or in my previous life, previous companies. Uh, some of them worked uh, worked in Africa 
and uh, in the Middle East uh, back in the uh, 80s and 90s, and and they've got uh, they've had some interesting stories that they'll start telling telling after a few beers. And they start telling you how much money they're earning because I imagine it's fairly lucrative. I don't know how uh, specifically the numbers of how lucrative it was, but uh, I'm sure they earned it as uh, one of uh, my. Uh, former co-workers who at the time was working as an engineer and a flight mechanic for one of these outfits uh, told me a story that made me think that, yeah, they earned their money. He was telling a story about how he, he got to, a, after they landed somewhere on the African continent, he had to call uh, uh, the director of maintenance back in the United States and ask him a technical question concerning the number three engine mm-hmm. on uh, their aircraft. And the question was, uh, how do I get an unexploded missile out of the end of it? <laughs> well, how do you do a thing like that? <laughs> I believe, uh, if I remember correctly, they removed the entire engine and left it there. Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't need that engine to fly home. Well, you got any, you got any bush pilot stories up in Alaska? I know that that's a kind of a, a rough and ready place. Yeah, that was uh, that was uh, interesting flying. Um, the type of flying that I did up uh, in Alaska, it wasn't uh, so much hauling tourists around. It was uh, supplying uh, everything to the uh, villages in western Alaska. Anything that you could not find on the tundra, you ha- it had to be flown in. To most of these villages the uh, most bizarre combination of cargo that i ever carried was actually to the village of quinnahawk one summer and it's right on the uh, right on the edge of the uh, chugach sea which is part of the the bering uh, sea okay and uh it was in a uh cessna caravan which could which could haul quite a bit of cargo I carried a brand new washing machine still in the box, mm-hmm. 2,000 pounds of soda pop, and a dead body in a coffin. Someone wanted to return home to be buried in his native it's, village? It's a common thing. We carried a lot of HR, human remains, uh, up there. And the entire village turned out, the, the little dirt strip was about a quarter mile, half a mile away from the village. The entire village turned out to take the dead, uh, the dead body off in in this little cardboard uh, casket and because the way it was situated in the airplane i kind of had to push the the uh, washing machine out first and then i pushed the uh, helped them uh, push the coffin out onto the back of a pickup truck and i turned around to go back into the airplane to grab the you know these 63 pound packs of soda pop that made up the 2000 pounds rest of the cargo when i turned around everybody was gone because they were off hauling the, the the body back, so I had to just dump the the Coca Cola on the side of the uh, strip there. And uh, t- you had to unload pallets yourself. Well, in we called them triple mailers up there. It was uh, three flats bounded together. It was how the uh, soda pop was uh, hauled around, and each uh, triple mailer uh, weighed exactly sixty three pounds. And they were uh, bounded together with the plastic binding. So you must have got quite a workout. Oh, uh, we did, we did. It was uh, that's why flying up there is a young man's uh, job because <laughs> when you're 25 and it's 30 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, and to give you a perspective of that, 30 degrees below zero Fahrenheit means that water froze like 70 degrees ago. <laughs> and you're at the edge of the Bering Sea in the dead of winter, and you're unloading 2,000 pounds of soda pop. When you're 25, that seems like an yeah. adventure, but yeah. not so much anymore. less fun when you get older, yeah. yeah. There's one nice thing I could point out that at negative 40, it's Celsius and Fahrenheit. It, it is indeed, and that was just kind of, that was a, a, a reason in the dead of winter to celebrate. <laughs> 
it was this human range thing was that that's pretty common your carton you yeah, say about, that's pretty about, common uh, once once a month or so we would have uh, that now when we were flying the smaller aircraft the Cessna 207 if the seats are taken out a regular casket can fit exactly in the back uh, um, right behind the pilot seat and then we would strap it down with with nets and then you fly it off to whatever village you go to by yourself and believe me as you're flying even though if, if it's a short flight 25 30 minutes or an hour hour and a half every horror movie you've ever <laughs> ever watched replays in your head you hear a as the coffin door we had we had one joker up there who was a brand new guy and he thought of a really really fun prank he was going to get one of these cheap cardboard coffins that the human remains are hauled around in and he was going to get in it and have have it flown to somebody else now mind you the 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 coffin is completely strapped down with cargo netting and he was just going to be just stick his hand out and grab the pilot by the leg after they've taken off. And I asked him, "Are you That's completely insane? Idea. You want to scare to death the pilot while you're actually strapped into the back in in a coffin?" So we kind of nixed the plan. Um, his, you, he, you talked him out of that one. He, when I when I when I explained it to him that way, he realized the folly of of pre-coffining yourself in an aircraft and scaring to death the pilot. I know you, you fly this cargo around, a lot of people do, and, and that probably has advantages and disadvantages, one would imagine, to flying passengers. Uh, I enjoy uh, flying cargo much better uh, simply because you don't have to deal with, oh, the passengers, or with flight attendants, or as we like to say, uh, them boxes don't complain about nothing. Well, you got a final juicy story about maybe the most odd thing you've ever flown? This didn't happen to me, fortunately, but one of our crews was uh, carrying a load of uh, lab mice in the in the belly of the aircraft, and apparently the mice got loose <laughs> over the course of a two-hour flight. Uh, the mice started popping up in the cockpit, <laughs> and from the stories that we... You know, a, lot, a lot of people don't, don't enjoy rodents. No, 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 they don't, particularly if you're just sitting there at 35,000 feet and something's crawling over your shoulder and you look over. The story is that the, the en engineer at the time was uh, a small guy who was fairly tough, a bodybuilder, and when the captain and the engineer turned around, he was standing on his seat... <laughs> with his oxygen mask on for some reason, screaming into it as two or three mice were just scurrying around the cockpit floor. Like we still have not let him hear the end of that one. Well, Vlado, I knew, I knew you'd have some good stories. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right, well, come come again soon. Let's talk Let's talk about aviation. You have, you've, you've been falling down the duty as our aviation correspondent by flying around all over the world. I have been busy. I've, I've got to go get the stories before I can tell them. All right. Mr. Millen and I had not heard that for the last seven years, and I got to tell you that uh, we enjoyed that very much. Makes us sad that we did not make more use of Vlado, but many times I would call him, talk about coming on the show, and he was always flying across the country doing this or that, and, and alas, it didn't come to pass. We will have, when we're done, seven different interviews we did with him. That, I think, is, is not a bad legacy. All right, to speak about our, our late, great uh, aviation correspondent is um, someone we've had on this program a couple of times before, and I'm sorry to bring him back under these circumstances, but we do want to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Michael O'Connell. 
Thank you very much. Wish I wish too it would be better under under better circumstances, but uh, good talking with you. I want to remind our listeners that you are uh, you've been a budding comedian and are doing very well and. Uh, and I, I, and I know we probably should address the fact, and we talked previously, you said that, uh, you know, y- your whole interest in comedy kind of goes back to our good friend, Vlado. Yep, he was, uh, he and I had known each other for years and years and years, like three decades or more. And, uh, yeah, just somewhere around 2010, he got a hold of me and said, why don't we go try uh, open mic stand-up comedy? I said, all right, that's weird, but okay, I'll give it a try with you. And we did on January 5th, 2010. And that is the night I became a comedian. And uh, everything that's happened in the last five years, all the amazing things and adventures and comedy, and uh, that's all because of a lot of Well, I didn't realize it was only just short of five years that you've been doing this. Uh, um, yeah, I got into Again, it's something I yeah. never was not one of these lifelong things. It was just, you know, I never really considered it until I brought it up. I was unemployed, over 40, never done it before, and... That didn't seem to bother him, and he thought we should go give it a try. And uh, we had a lot of fun doing it together until we decided to step away and just focus on uh, on my career. He became sort of my de facto manager and promoter and uh, and uh, stagehand and whatever he could be. Wow. And and I should note to that end, I, I understand that you are there's there's your things are looking up for that career that Vlado's been managing. You're 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 going to L.A. or something. What 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 is happening, Michael? Well, I, I can't talk a lot about it because of uh, paperwork signed and such, but I'm waiting to hear back. Uh, I was down screen testing in L.A. for a TV pilot. Uh, I'm waiting to hear back this week of all times, but that is, uh, you know, another direct result and amazing opportunity and adventure in my life that never would have happened without, uh, without a lot of uh, His whole life was a one big adventure, and uh, thank God he managed to do the same for anybody who got into his orbit. Well, Michael, uh, you know, best of best of wishes and all that. I hope you can carry, in essence, Vlado's legacy forward. Uh, you know, with your own efforts. But uh, I guess there'll be some sort of service for him. Yeah, yeah. The burial is Friday. There'll be a memorial service on Saturday at his family's church, and then on November first, we are planning the celebration. We really would have wanted. There's going to be a big uh, Vlado shindig, a big party. We're going to throw with all of his many, many friends. Uh, out of that airline hangar, uh, which is perfectly appropriate for him. And we're going to have a good time and have the smiles and the memories that he's going to want us to have. I, I, I think that's a great idea. Certainly a celebration of life is a wonderful way to commemorate somebody once they've gone. Yeah. And we're going to have, you know, pilots involved. And he loved his, uh, he loved his career. He loved to fly. It was one of his favorite things in life. And we all followed his aviation and other adventures on Facebook and, and loved it. Uh, he was taking us all over the world with him. Well, Michael, um, I, I do hope that, uh, you know, sometime after that, uh, and especially if you have you know, any good news to report from what's going on in Los Angeles, come on back and talk to us. Uh, we, we should remind people about what, you know, what, what comedy that you do. And that's the, just give people a refresher on that. You know, you're appearing locally sometimes as well. I do. I do. Right now, most of my stuff is out of town on October 30th. I'll be at a fundraiser with my group, the Comedians with Disabilities Act. We're going to be uh, taping our first comedy CD. Uh, and everybody in the group is very saddened that uh, for once, Vlado's not going to be there with us. So we're going to we're gonna make that extra special for him. 
Well, sir, again, it's hard to be talking under these difficult circumstances, but life goes on, and we hope we can commemorate uh, Vlado's life and, and again, full speed ahead. And come back again in the next uh, next few weeks to months, and let's let's talk again. Sounds good, and let me leave you with the words as both a pilot and a fan of the show Firefly that, uh, that Vlado lived by. Uh, what he would tell you all is keep flying. Indeed. As I say, we're going to try and create a web show devoted solely to our interviews with Vlado. We may need a few days to get that up and running. Give us, uh, give us a little time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. This is Radio Parallax, and I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We're hoping to bring you a lot of interesting guests in the next few weeks, so please do tune in for that. And again, we remind you that if you want to hear more of our interviews with Vladimir Zaravika, and you should, he was, he was a great interviewee, Go to our website, radioparallax.com. Type in his name and then listen in. Sky.